Hey, this is LOA Today, the Law of Attraction show. Welcome to LOA Today. My name is Walt Thiessen. On this Thursday, May 18, 2017, and I have a little sad news to relate. Joel Elston, unfortunately, well, fortunately for him, he's doing great. His new position as director of the uh, clinic that he has helped to found in the Richmond, Virginia area is just taking off, and uh, his uh, relationship with his two foster sons is really flying. Everything is working out so well in his life, so well, in fact, that unfortunately he can't do the show anymore, which is sad for me because we had such a great time doing it. Um, but uh, we, we have a year and a half of uh, legacy of all the shows that we did, and it, it was just a great time. So, Joel, we wish you all the best. And uh, we have a new co-host that's going to be joining us next week. His name is David Barsky, and I'll give you a full uh, bio on him when I introduce him next week. But for this week, my brother and sister-in-law are stepping into the breach once again to uh, fill the gap and help me do the in-between show. So, Mark and Yuona, thank you for helping me do the in-between show. Yeah, we've become good at doing in-between. That's right. <laughs> it's good to have a skill, I've always felt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and as often happens, we were actually kind of struggling for a topic this week. And then I remembered I had asked uh, Yuona to remind me of uh, what some of the hormones are uh, involved in the process of, of how our good feelings and bad feelings actually feed us um, physically, how they actually uh, impact the way the body operates. This is information she had shared in a show that she recorded with me, oh, geez, about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And she gave me that information again, and we said, well, let's make it about that, because that was a pretty interesting topic, I have to say. Um, the yeah. fact, the idea that, the, that you can actually, through your emotions, influence the way that your body either heals or destroys, <laughs> it's really kind of scary that it works both ways. Right, but yeah, that's, it's good news for us. It's good news because we get, we get to know of a way to basically take control of our physical lives in addition yes. to our emotional spiritual lives so, so that that's encouraging and it, yeah and, and that's kind of been the underlying theme of, of the show you know mm -hmm. taking back the control <laughs> absolutely it is no doubt about it um now the information that you drew from came particularly from one book by one author um yes. the book was published some 20 years ago what was the book Molecules of Emotion by uh, Candice Pert. She is, was a, she is, I think, still is a neuroscientist, and she um, worked with the uh, the molecules in in the brain and the body, and she discovered that most of these molecules were associated with or being released by things that were happening in the emotional center of our brain, and so then she realized you know, based on uh, years of research, that we, the way we feel depends almost entirely on the molecules that are flowing through our body at one time or another. And she's well-credentialed. I mean, she has a yes. PhD in pharmacology from Johns Hopkins University. That, that That's yep. not too shabby. Oh, yeah, that's top of the line. <laughs> Undergraduate studies in biology with a cum laude degree from Bryn Mawr College. That's not too shabby either. So, yeah, and, and she also conducted a National Institutes of Health postdoctoral fellowship with the Department of Pharmacology at Johns Hopkins 
from 74 yep. to 75. I mean, so she, she has some pretty intense credentials. She does, yeah. And I think she she either worked for a Nobel Prize scientist or she was uh, in the running for one or something. There was something about a Nobel Prize being <laughs> talked about with, in relation to her and her work. There, there is one sad thing. You may not have been aware of it. She did die. She died in 2013. Oh, oh really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She died in 2013, age 67. But uh, she oh, she left us a legacy that's just absolutely oh, tremendous. Wow. So when we were talking about her, she was already dead. She'd already it? passed, yeah. Yep. What did she die of? I don't really know. Let's see. Does it give any information? No, it doesn't. It does the the report I'm seeing? It's this is a Wikipedia article. It doesn't give me any information well, about you know, it. One of her, she wrote a biography slash thing. I read another book, not the Molecules of Emotion. She wrote another book, and I there was some mention of her dealing with some illness, but it was nothing serious. I I, I guess I don't know. Hmm. Well, now I have to go research that. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to put a downer on it, but let's no, go. No, no, no. Let's go to the positive side because yeah, the molecules, of, the molecules of emotion, basically set a new standard in Absolutely. terms of of our understanding of of the control we have over our own bodies. And maybe you know, just give like a, a a two minute overview. What what does the book teach us? Well, firstly, yeah, even though learning of her death was sad, I you know I feel happy about the the legacy that she's left. Um, you know, in terms of what she has helped us understand, and, you know, she was one of my heroes as a female neuroscientist and all that, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so she um, she basically helped us understand how emotions work, because we, we had this kind of nefarious idea about emotions as feelings and things that we couldn't really touch or, or see, or, you know, then she kind of made them physical, right? So now she says that there are these hormones or neurochemicals and they are uh, circulating in our body in response to what we're thinking, which is controlled by the the emotional centers of our brain. And then they get released by um, the hypothalamus. And as they flow through the body, there are receptors on our cells that these molecules are then going to latch on and that those receptors allow the the molecules to enter our cells. And when they enter our cells, the reactions that they trigger is responsible for the way we feel. So, um, for example, the the feel-good hormones, the endorphins and um, the serotonins, when they are flowing and are entering our cells, we feel happy, we feel optimistic, we feel energized. Um, but when we have um, cortisol or adrenaline flowing through our system, um, especially for extended periods of time, that's when we start feeling stressed and depressed and angry and frustrated and all that kind of stuff. And, and to give us an idea of just how, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for, uh, mind-bending, I guess, is perhaps the word, this, this whole bit of research is, our knowledge as a as a human species about endorphins, about uh, 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 about adrenaline and and about uh, dopamine and uh, you know, the, the hormones, the neurotransmitters, it's only about forty years old, isn't it? I mean, it yes. hasn't been around for a long time. Yeah, and she was, and she was at the forefront of learning yeah. this stuff. Exactly, it was relatively new stuff, and um, 
you know, we went from discovering that they existed. <laughs> and there's a funny story because adrenaline and epinephrine are the same molecules, but they were di discovered by a, an American scientist who called it adrenaline. And then a British scientist discovered the same molecule and called it epinephrine. And it was only years later they realized it was the same molecule. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever bothered to look at the molecules? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, uh, Frank, I mean, this molecule looks like an awful lot like ours. I mean, <laughs> when science was not as collaborative as... <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, now you have the internet and people are sharing. And, oh, know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. it's a lot yeah. different. But yes, yeah. So you know, they were discovering these the existence of these molecules, right? And then we weren't quite sure what they did. And then we were we get we moved there from the, the realization that they existed to the fact that they are associated with, um, you know, there was the um, the sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone, and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of figured, okay. Um, one dominates in men and the other in women, that kind of stuff. And we moved from there to really understanding that these uh, hormones um, are specifically associated with certain functions. But what Candice Perth did was actually mapped out the, 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 the reaction, each stage, each step of the reaction, which had not been done before. So it was quite, quite enlightening. So in your introduction, you pointed out that there are feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters and feel-bad hormones and transmitters, neurotransmitters. Yes. By the way, let, let's also define our terms here. We don't really want to make this a science lecture, but what exactly is a neurotransmitter? So um, a neurotransmitter is the term given to a neurochemical that uh, flows between neurons. So you have two neurons and they meet um, and there's a gap between them. They don't actually touch. There's a small gap called a synapse. And when uh, uh, neuro <laughs> energy or information is being transmitted through these from one neuron to another, it does so in the form of, of these neurotransmitters. So uh, one neuron, number one, will get an electrical impulse and it will cause a release of these neurotransmitters that will then be picked up by neuron number two. You know, it releases it into the synapse and, and then neuron, uh, neuron number two picks it up and then it passes on to neuron number three. And that's how um, uh, impulses and information uh, travels throughout the nervous system. And this was this was pretty significant stuff, wasn't it? Because the whole concept of a neurotransmitter kind of upset the earlier model about how the nervous system works. I mean, they they thought it was just all purely electrical impulses, and this right. said, no, it's not. It's more than that. <laughs> right? Yeah, there was like these funny chemical things involved. You know? <laughs> chemical thingies. <laughs> Because it, it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was very controversial 40 years ago because we had the diehard um, electrical uh, people, you know, who said, oh, chemicals, that, that can, cannot be that, you know. <laughs> and then there were the, the chemical, the neurochemical people who were saying, hello, I think we got something here that you guys you know, might want to pay attention to. And I think the, the original scientists, uh, you know, they went to their graves holding on to their... Um, you know, respective uh, beliefs, and it wasn't until later on when we had the more sophisticated tools that we could actually see things in real time and measure the release of these tiny uh, burst blips of, of neurochemicals, because, you know, the change in the concentration is so minute 
in term, you know, relatively speaking, um, that it was hard to actually detect what was going on. But now we can. And so now we know that there are some electrical connections where, where neurons touch, but those only make up, I think, uh, maybe 5 to 10% of all the, you know, connections in the body. Because for the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a chemical um, transmission that, that takes place. So we don't really want to turn it into a science lecture. Let's start yes. taking this back to law of attraction and to our ability to basically control our bodies in ways that we didn't even know we could do before all this re- research took place. And right. and if I'm not misreading this, even today I get the sense that there's still a lot of resistance to the idea that we can have this kind of control within the research community. Am I wrong about that? Yes, there is a lot of um, still a lot of resistance. For a number of reasons. Um, yeah, the whole idea of, of you being res- completely responsible is something that scientists, some scientists have a problem with because, you know, they still believe that um, genetics and the environment and, um, I don't know, the things you eat and all that kind of stuff are a stronger d- d- determinant. Is that a word? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of, yeah. of what's happening to you, but what what you know what Candace Pert is saying that you actually have more control than you realize, because what she realized, what she discovered is that these um, neurochemicals or neurotransmitters, the release of them is controlled by the area in the brain that I mentioned earlier, the the hypothalamus, which is basically the um, the chemical lab of your body, uh, you know, it it makes the chemicals. But that hypothalamus is then controlled by your brain, and it's controlled by the area of your brain that's responsible for your emotions. So basically when you you think a thought, and it could be consciously or or, or subconsciously, when you respond to your environment, where you see something or you hear something or you feel something, that then t- turns on certain areas of the hypothalamus and particular chemicals are released and then you, um, as they uh, affect the cells in your body, then a feeling or an emotion, as it were, is produced. Okay, so now let's turn it into something that we can actually use because yes. right now I feel like we're in science class. and Okay, okay. And uh, I, I did okay in science, but a lot of people didn't, and I'm afraid that we're losing people. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So the, the basic idea is that if you want to feel good, then you can do so by changing the thoughts that you're thinking. Okay. And does that have particular consequences? Right. Yes, absolutely. So if you um, start thinking um, thoughts of gratitude or love or uh, happiness, you know, you just you start thinking those thoughts, then it actually triggers uh, areas in your brain to respond. And then the chemicals, the, the, the feel-good chemicals, um, the, the serotonin and the endorphins, are produced and then you start actually feeling, you know, those chemicals take over and your your whole body feels good. And I know this might be new for some people, but they may be more familiar with endorphins as it's associated with something less um, 
subjective. Like, when, like you know, we, we know for a fact that when you exercise, that you release endorphins, the feel-good hormones, right? So that's, uh, an, to an extent, uh, uh, you taking charge, basically, of what's happening in your body. So as you go out there and you exercise, you walk, you run, you, you hike, you swim, whatever you do, then those endorphins are released. And eventually, it, it, um, you know, within a period of time, you start feeling a lot better than you were before you started exercising. And I didn't realize that endorphins are essentially painkillers. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Which is a little bit surprising. I mean, that I guess it's, that is reflected in the fact that people become addicted to drugs that they shouldn't become addicted to because they they eliminate pain. So I guess we shouldn't right. be too surprised. Yeah. But I, it almost makes me wonder, is feeling good really just getting rid of pain? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it isn't. But the thing is, um, it's very closely connected in the, in the, in the new neuronal system. You know, there are a lot of crossed wires, as it were, <laughs> without getting too technical. But, you know, there are areas in the brain that are responsible for pain, and, and those, some of those same areas are responsible for you, um, how you feel. And that's why pain is so very subjective. And so, you know, yeah, for some people, minimizing pain is their way of feeling happy. And then for other people, you know, the absence or presence of pain, yeah, you know, but it, it's it's very closely linked. And that's why it's hard to separate them. And that's why endorphins. So the thing about the endorphins is that, like I was describing before, the, these are these neurochemicals and you have receptors on your cells that recognize these neurochemicals and the neurochemicals get latched onto the receptors and the receptors allow the entry of the neurochemicals into the cells. So the receptors are on regular cells, uh, skin cells, stomach cells, liver cells, as well as on uh, the neurons, right? So you have neurons that are responsible for pain and they have receptors for endorphins, but you have the same receptors on other cells. And that is why there is this very close relationship between pain and the absence of pain and feeling bad or feeling good, feeling happy or sad. I think we're back in science class again, so maybe Sorry. we need to go in a different direction. Okay. <laughs> Let's try it this way. I remember right. from uh, the first time we talked about this about two years ago, uh, we, we laid out a scenario that I found to be fascinating, which is that yeah. if you're feeling, correct me if I go wrong here, if you're feeling happy and you're feeling good, and mm-hmm. let's say there's some sort of, uh, you, you maybe you have an infection or you have some sort of an in- tissue injury or something, mm-hmm. what the body ends up doing is sending signals through the nervous system to go heal that spot. Am I wrong right. about that? Oh, well, that's correct. That's correct. And similarly, if you're feeling sad, down, depressed, frustrated, angry, that same spot starts getting basically signals that say, get worse. (laughs) Right. Because, again, you know, it's it's also very interconnected. It's hard to separate them. So, again, like, you know, you have these um, cells in your brain that um, help you to feel happy. And then you have these cells that are part of your immune system that um, are responsible for 
uh, repair and, and uh, rebuilding of tissue that's injured or even the removal of, uh, you know, antigens, unwanted antibodies and stuff like that. And those cells, the white cells that are part of the immune system, they also respond to those very same uh, endorphins that are flowing through your body when you feel good. So it's almost as if the endorphins, the feel-good hormones, are an additional arsenal for the immune system, for the white blood cells, that then allow them to do their work even more efficiently. Whereas when you feel badly stressed out, depressed, you're releasing cortisol, and they are destructive to your white blood cells. Cortisol does what? What what are some of the the side effects, if you will? Well, first, let's. So, cortisol is the um, you know the fight or flight hormone. So, when you're faced with danger or some kind of life threatening uh, uh, situation, the cortisol is what's going to raise your heart rate. You know. get you charged up, energized, ready to go or ready to defend yourself, ready to run, whatever. So your heart rate goes up, uh, blood rushes through to the larger, um, to the limbs and um, to the eyes and, you know, everything that's involved in defending yourself. Which is important for a short-term situation. Exactly. For a short term, it's necessary and, you know, it, it does its thing. The, the the thing is that we now no longer live in a uh, environment of the saber toothed tiger, you know. So a, a part of that, I guess, is is more or less shutting down the healing response because that's not priority exactly. in those moments. Right, right. So yes, the limited resources is now going to be directed to getting away or defending yourself, okay. right? And so then it's going to start doing that whatever needs to be done, but then it should stop and then. The resources, the energy, the nutrition, everything should now be focused back to um, keeping the body healthy, keeping it alive, keeping it happy. Uh, But what happens, unfortunately, is that cortisol, um, because we're constantly in a stressed type of uh, environment and we kind of walk around stressed all all the time, and so our cortisol levels are perpetually high. And so after a while, the cortisol no longer becomes the fight or flight uh, hormone. It starts doing damage to your body. It starts, um, you know, excess cortisol can actually start destroying um, your healthy cells, and in particular cells in the brain, and then even in more particular, (laughs) that's an expression, the cells in the hippocampus that is responsible for memory. That's why that's one of the first things to go when you are under stressful condition is your 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 memory. I, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, that what what that basically is pointing to is that if you live in a state of feeling down most of the time, mm-hmm. you're basically sending signals through your throughout your body to start killing off cells. Yes. Yes, and, and how yeah. many people live like that? Yeah, right. unfortunately, and that's why you know there's um, several quotations around that say about seventy to anywhere between seventy to ninety percent of all the illnesses that we face in our society, um, the underlying cause is stress. So, 
what the doctors have been telling us for years is true. You stress isn't good for you. They they just kind of understated it. Yes, exactly. They really did. I mean, it's not yeah. like they were telling you, well, you, you want to avoid stress because it's going to kill you. They told you, well, it's just not really good for you. Right, yeah. Yeah, you're right, because just like they have a, a, a Surgeon General warning on the cigarette packs, they need to have a similar warning about stress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. It will kill you. And, and it's it becomes... Here's that word. It becomes chronic. Yes, exactly. It leads to chronic conditions. How many chronic illnesses are there in society okay. today? It's just yeah, it's astonishing. All the ones are chronic. So it makes me wonder: Are they all connected in this way? Yeah, yeah. Because we did a good job of, of getting rid of you know all the um, the the biological type diseases. You know, so now the only thing that's killing us are these chronic quote lifestyle diseases that are perpetuated or or caused by stress the good news is that they're all reversible if you remove the stress the disease gets better and even goes away in most cases and, and this is the other part of what we talked about two years ago that really caught my attention because mm -hmm. not only is it reversible but you were telling me about how quickly the body responds right I mean, if I remember correctly, when these neurotransmitters start transmitting because we're feeling either the happy side or the, the positive side, the negative side, uh, let's assume it's the positive side because we're mm -hmm. into positivity here. Mm -hmm. um, the moment that you start putting out these positive feelings, 90 seconds later, your body is, is, is affecting the cells that need to be healed. 90 yes. seconds. Yes. I mean, that, that's yeah. like that. That's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. I just recall that that I that was from. Another book that we read, um, Stroke of Insight, by the other neuroscientist, Jill Bolte-Taylor, who suffered a stroke herself and who was able to, while still debilitated, to understand everything that was happening to her because she, was, um, she had been a neuroscientist for over 10 years or more at that time. And so... And even through her rehabilitation, she could understand exactly what was going on. And that was one of the insights that she shared about the 90-minute uh, rule that you can actually change. And it would make sense that our bodies would be designed like that because, like, for example, the cortisol, it's not intended to persist. So it's supposed to be something quick and immediate and then goes away. You, you said and, 90 minutes. Did you mean 90 seconds? Sorry, 90 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that would be a long time, wouldn't it? Well, actually, it isn't, con considering how often and how long we tend to stay in the negative, depressed state. But, True. you know, it's longer than, than we have the tolerance to wait in many cases. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of, we, uh, you know, I've heard it so many times, we're kind of taking it for granted, but 90 seconds is, is pretty quick, is. you know, because we can, we can stay in, in a Funk for a long time. For days, weeks. <laughs> yes. And and basically what she said is when that's happening is that we are actually re-triggering the release of those stress hormones every 90 seconds. That's why it persists. Which is fascinating. Um, from the moment that you told me that on that show that we did a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. that was the point at which I was I became firmly committed to trying to improve my positivity levels on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And there are a couple of things that have come out of that. First yeah. is it's amazing how difficult it is to make the change on a consistent basis. Yeah. I mean, I've made a lot of 
strides. I, I am certainly positively oriented, feeling positive a lot more of my day than I used to be two years ago even. But yeah. at the same time, it, I mean, it, it, it's like we have this built-in default mechanism that says, stay on the depressed side. The dark yeah. the dark side of the force is awaiting you. <laughs> right, because our, we've fallen into these um, habits, like you said, these default uh, kind of um, attitudes and feeling. And and here's the other thing that's really interesting, and I don't remember if it was Candice Pert or Bolshe Taylor or some of the neuroscientists that shared this, but what they, uh, what I found even more fascinating was that um, what happens with, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little bit sciencey here, but on the surface of our cells, on the membranes, the outside, we have the neurotransmitters, right? These are these little bodies that are kind of looking around and looking for their match. And what happens is as we um, have these habits, these habits are actually being determined by the chemicals that are flowing through our bodies. And so we we have the receptors that for these chemicals are the ones that persist, right? And so if you are constantly in a bad, stressed out moods, your cholesterol, your cortisol, sorry, receptors are the ones that predominate, right? Because they're like, well, that's what you need, so we're going to give you a ton of those. And your receptors for endorphins and all the good feel with good ones, they're actually going to decrease in number. And so it will be much easier for you to respond uh, to a stressful situation. It, it, you know, you, it's, it's, it's like second nature to you, as, as it were. Well, plus you're and, also describing a scenario in which familiarity plays a role, doesn't it? Right. Be, be, because, exactly. because it's familiar to have all the cortisol receptors. We don't think of it as cortisol receptors. We think of it as just feeling depressed. But, right. But the familiarity of that persists in our, in our nervous system. Yes. But here's the beautiful thing. The, when you start um, deliberately um, triggering feel-good hormones, whether it's by exercise or you're doing your gratitude list or you're thinking happy thoughts, you know, however often, the body takes notice, and they said, oh, we might have to, uh, you know, have a reissue in the number of, of receptors for these hormones because she is kind of feeling happier these days. You know, we might have to reevaluate that. And if you keep doing that, more receptors for the endorphins are going to start poking out of your cells, and, more, and, the, and the DNA is going to start making more of these receptors and then the ones for cortisol, they're going to decrease in number. And if you persist, eventually the, endorph the receptors for endorphin predominates and the one for cortisol, um, it reduces in number. And so your, your new default is one of uh, happy, um, grateful, you know, just excited kind of state as opposed to the opposite. But, you know, you have to know that that's, that can happen, and then you have to actually put steps in place to make that happen. But the fact that it, it can happen is, is so exciting. So, so stepping out of science class for a minute, if you persist yes. in staying happy, you'll feel happier. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, why did you say so? <laughs> I was hoping if I gave you the science background, it might add to the motivation. I don't know. It was for me. That science background reminds me of addiction. Uh -huh. Are they yes. related? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
Right, because then when you have an addiction for uh, certain drugs, you have these these receptors uh, um, for the drugs, and they become very active looking for that drug. And when you don't give it the drug, it's gonna get really antsy, <laughs> for want of a better term. And so, you know, when you stop, then you go through that withdrawal period, which can be really painful. Wow. But you can change the the the, the quality and the quantity of receptors on your cells. So do we become addicted to our negative emotions and do uh, we suffer withdrawal when we try to shift away? Yes. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> so that the is- bad news is most of us are addicted to negativity. Yep. The good news is we can break the addiction. Absolutely, yes. There is And become there- addicted to feeling good. Yes, and happy. exactly. <laughs> And don't we know people like that? And you kind of wonder what's wrong with them. But now you know that's just their default state. And, and that's how they operate. And you too can be like that. <laughs> <laughs> now, let, let's talk about dopamine for a minute. Because okay. do, dopamine is one of my favorite words. It's one of my favorite names because I have a certain association. Dopamine feels great. You, it's almost like a commercial on TV. Dopamine. It okay. feels great. Yes. Why does dopamine feel great? So dopamine is like serotonin, like endorphins. It's one of those um, neurochemicals that, when it you know gets attached to the receptors and enters the cells, you know there are a number of um, reactions that take place, and those reactions are all um, life-giving, health-giving, feel-good type of reactions, and so it produces that kind of response in you. And and that's and and so there's a good and bad because of course. In, in, in other words, we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> so what we do know is that there there are things that can, um, other than dopamine, that can uh, uh, um, attach to the dopamine receptors, and cocaine is one of them. Which we really want to try to avoid. Right. We want to use the actual natural dopamine built into the system. Exactly. Right. Yes, because you, what we do know about dopamine, so like like endorphins are released when you exercise, and serotonin is released when you, you feel, you think happy thoughts, and you're hopeful for the future, and oxytocin is released when you hug your favorite person. Dopamine is... I can't let you just drop that one. Oxytocin... Okay. Is is particularly activated when you hug? Yes, it's called. It's actually nicknamed the hug hormone. So we should be doing more hugging. Abs- yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about social contact, and, and it's um, it's it's highest in women when they just given birth, but it's also um, uh, peaks for women. I think for men too after um, that. What what do I? What's the politically correct term? <laughs> Intimate relations. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, so getting but, back to hugging, I, I hate to distract us, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, but when you hug, you you actually um, release ex, uh, ox, oxytocin. I, I have to ask this question: Why hasn't anybody been touting the hugging cure? <laughs> I don't know. There are some people, I think, but they're a very small group. <laughs> yeah, there are scientists who work um, exclusively with this hormone and. They do great work. I've heard some lectures by some of them, and you know they kind of get relegated to the back of the hormone group for some reason. I don't know. They're, they're kind of the new kid to the to the dance. So, <laughs> but but this is pretty important stuff. I mean, yeah. literally, the act of hugging another person is 
is physically good for both of you to the point where it helps you get into that positive, uh, habitual place to be. Yes. That, that, that's significant. Yeah, it is. Helps it you is. heal. It does, exactly. Yeah, it's a powerful hormone, but we are just kind of now learning, you know, a lot about, um, we, we know how, when it's released, but in terms of all the good things that it does, we're just now learning that. Well, th this is even a little bit more exciting than in two years ago because I don't even remember talking about oxytocin and hugging. But but <laughs> Probably hu not, but, but yeah, hugging, like I mean, shoot, what the heck are we waiting for? The, hugging <laughs> is one of the nicest, most fun things you can do. Why are we, you know, not saying, hey, you know, let <laughs> we need to have twenty five hugs a day in order to feel better. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are people who do say that. Yeah, they actually do say that that you need. Because they say, um, uh, you know, there's a number for how many men need and how many women need. <laughs> oh, they do have it broken down. Okay. Yes, they do. They do. Well, yeah. well, with this information, then, it, well, first of all, it helps me to understand why it's been a little bit of a struggle to try to get myself into the positive framework, if you will, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. It also reinforces why it is that when you start bringing more of a positive attitude, positive feeling into your life, and you stick with it, it tends to stick with you. It, yeah. Because it, it seems like this addictive quality works either way, depending on which right. hormone you're talking about, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, we do have the power. On the other hand, we have to work at it. Yes, yes. It is within our control, but because of our past... <laughs> For want of a better word, it's going to take some effort on our part to. Well, the, to I, I find that to be comforting, believe it or not. Yeah. Okay. And the reason I find it to be com comforting is it explains why it is we don't seem to get the instant LOA results that the secret promises. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. Why doesn't it happen? I I figured out why it was that a lot of people couldn't make the secret work. I figured that out a few years ago. This is help mm -hmm. helping to fill that in, though. Cause, yeah. Because what yeah. I figured out is that. If, if the secret is, if the law of attraction is responding to our thoughts and the, our emotions are basically the meters sh uh, indicating whether our, what we're thinking about is congruent with who we are or not congruent with who we are, congruent with mm -hmm. what we want to be, not congruent, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. then what we really need to be doing is focusing on developing that skill. So why doesn't it work? Well, because it, it actually does work just that we're spending all of our time on the negative side yeah, and we don't yeah. realize it. Most of us yeah. don't realize that most of the time we're not being positive. You're right. In yes. fact, uh, I've, I've had conversations recently with a couple people. Yeah. One of them was telling me, he started off by saying, I'm a very positive person. <laughs> and then he spent the next 15 minutes describing all the ways that his girlfriend is negative. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't recognize it. He didn't, he didn't see that going on. I had to point it out to him. And the way I pointed it out to him is, okay, so those are all the negatives. What are the positives? And there was a long silence. Mm. He couldn't think of any. Right. He could not think of a single positive. And when I pointed that out to him, it kind of shook him, it kind of surprised him. Because we often don't realize just, even those of us who think that we're positive, we don't realize just how much time we're spending focusing on negatives. Right, yeah. So so now having this information that tells us that 
our hormones, our, our neurotransmitters are basically playing off of what we're focusing on and mm-hmm. giving us more receptors to match what we're focusing on. Well, no wonder it takes a while to shift. No yeah. wonder we don't get a quick result when we start you know, putting out there, this is what I want in the, the, the field of all the, the time that I spend talking about the things I really don't want and that I don't like. Yes. If, yeah. I, if I spend all my day focusing on stuff I don't like and I spend one little piece of it focusing on what I like and then I expect the one piece that I like to come through, well, that's not terribly realistic. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because we, I mean, if we think of it in terms of, of these hormones and, and chemicals and the receptors and the neurotransmitters, yeah, we realize that um, you know we've been doing one thing for so long and it's going to take some time, like you said. And so just one one burst of endorphin you know it's kind of like it's kind of like working with a dysfunctional traffic cop (laughs) dysfunctional traffic cop is saying okay stop 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 all right now go go no stop 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 (laughs) stop all right go get going stop 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 it's crazy yeah yeah (laughs) but that's what we're doing to ourselves every day right exactly well now I have more incentive than I did even yesterday to focus on positives because what I really am trying to do, and I've, this is the part I've been on for quite some time, I'm really trying to take my mind off of all the negatives I focus on, which is mm-hmm. which can be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, some, yeah. some of those negatives we can find in our work lives or in you know our, our lives with our families or whatever. So it can be a big deal trying to overcome that stuff. I guess that's one of the reasons why the, the gurus teach trying to appreciate the good side of the stuff we deal with every day. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. by, by focusing on the good side, now we're at least giving ourselves a chance to feed ourselves the feel-good hormones instead of the feel-bad hormones and start developing these these little, um, what are they called, the, the receptors. Receptors, you know, yes. Developing receptors that are more in alignment with what we really want. Exactly. So, so there's actually a scientific reason to do all this stuff. It's not just the woo-woo of, of law of attraction. No, it's, yeah, there's lots of science behind it that we, we're only now understanding and, and relating to, to the LOA. So... I've been telling you about my struggles. How have you guys been doing? Are, are you applying it well, or are you caught in the same addictive trap that, that everybody else is like I am? Yes, because we still have this attitude of, okay, you learned this exciting new thing, and you're going to apply it, and the day you apply it, you expect magic. <laughs> and, and, and also, we have we have successful periods of time, and then we have unsuccessful times. Yeah. You know, we... We lose our focus, or we, we redirect our focus, I should say, you know, uh, unconsciously back to the negative stuff. But you know, and, and Walt, I shared this with you, I think, a couple of shows ago, that it's all about the efficiency of the body. The body is trying to make life as easy as it can for you, and one of the ways it does that is to resist change. And so, you know, when you're trying to do things differently. The body is like, mm, I don't know if you really want to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of evaluate it as time goes on. And so, because, you know, if you are in the same mode, that's easy. That's efficient. Mm. Something new is like, oh, new resources, new chemicals, new everything. DNA's right. got to do different things and all that kind of stuff. It's comfortable versus uncomfortable. Right. And it's, it's easier in terms of energy. True. And so... The body's kind of going to do the easy thing 
and, and work towards making whatever you're doing as easy as possible. Mm. And so it's until you persist, and I never feel like I explained this right enough, but it's until you persist where the new thing becomes easier, right. less requires less energy. And that happens when your conscious mind convinces your subconscious that this is really important. I don't know if that's when it happens. I, I so I'm I'm thinking still at the level of the neurons and and the 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 receptors because you know we've talked about epigenetics mm-hmm. and at the level of epigenetics is where you you actually change your DNA. So the DNA is what's producing the receptors. It's interesting you mentioned epigenetics because that's one of the things Joel's been studying recently. Oh, okay. We, we were going to spend more time talking about it, and obviously we didn't get a chance to do that. He's fascinating by, by fascinated by this whole concept of epigenetics. Yes, and, because and what, it, what it's basically opening up avenues of, of understanding that previously were limited by our our genetically oriented identity and philosophy. Right, because for our longest time, we thought that, you know, once it's in the DNA, it's written in the stone. But now we know that the DNA can be uh, um, influenced by the environment, and it can change what it does. It's changed its patterns, it's um, what it produces. And so the DNA that's been producing the receptors for cortisol, day in, day out, that's become easy. It's efficient to, to, to produce the receptors for endorphins now. That's going to be a new task on its list of things to do. And so until the, the work of producing endorphins, uh, receptors for the endorphins, predominates or takes over the work of producing the receptors for cortisol, that's when you know, you're no longer struggling, fighting. But the, the task is, the challenge is persisting to that place. I didn't know DNA was involved in that. Yes, DNA is involved. Just not as much as we thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not like you're, you know, once you're born and your parents were this way, then that's, yeah, but no. The all, Which is all, encouraging. It's not like you're locked in now. Absolutely. It is very encouraging because for, you know, uh, you know, previously we thought that, you know, happy people were born happy and, and unhappy people were born unhappy, <laughs> you know, but now we know and that, not that not just that you're born that way, but you're stuck with it. Exactly. Exactly. And it turns out you're not stuck with it. Now we know that's not the case. And, and we have scientific evidence, this whole field of epigenetics, as we were talking about, um, that shows that, you know, you can change your DNA in terms of what it what it does. You know, what it, uh, which is which is really important. I mean, okay. the, the, yes. it, it isn't so much that you're changing uh, the the DNA itself. You're, you're changing how the how the DNA operates, isn't it? Exactly right. Because you know, um, you know, we, we, we in the in the field of, of biology and science, we talk about um, genes that are expressed and genes that are not expressed, genes that are turned on and genes that are turned off, and that's what epigenetics is, genetics is all about. And, and just to give you, just to get a little bit sciencey, because I'm so excited about this. A little um, bit? We're, we've been in very sciencey for a while, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, like 10, 15 years ago, there was this push to um, identify the entire genome of the human body. And, you know, everybody was all, that was a whole talk. And, and finally they did. And then they were surprised to find out that only like 5 to 10% of our genes are actually 
functional genes that actually uh, uh, produce functional protein. The rest of it, they don't know what it does. And they suspect that it controls the function of these, uh, you know, the smaller uh, amounts of genes. And so epigenetics is the field of studying that 90% of the genetic material and how it works and how it's controlled and how it's influenced by, you know, diet and lifestyle and environment and thoughts and all these other kinds of fascinating things. So, In other words, it isn't the genes. Right. <laughs> 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 See, you only, you have to learn how to really synthesize it down to the simple. <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't learn that, but I, it's, yeah, you know, it's a challenge. I, no, I, I have you to do that, and you do such a great job. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll just be your official translator. Okay. <laughs> it's not about the bike. It's not about the tennis racket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have science to back the idea that we can make changes. Why don't we talk about making changes? Okay. Let, let's get off the scientific uh, treadmill for a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. We've been keeping the mice busy, so you know we'll let them continue to do their thing. But um, our thing is we don't want to have to be scientists in order to make changes. And fortunately, right. we don't have to. Yes. Because all we really have to do is decide on a conceptual level, really, what it is we want to focus on. Right. And then focus there and watch our emotional reaction to see whether we're focusing on the right thing. Mm -hmm. that, that's a fairly simple formula. Yeah. It, tri it trips us up easily because we, we, we so often get caught up in that, uh, that addictive quality we were talking about earlier. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a simple formula. Right. Yeah, and, you know, this kind of reminds me of what we had talked about um, last week and the week before about the whole idea of visualization because mm. um, you know I, I was thinking about this um, YouTube video that I saw some years ago where uh, the person was talking about this very same thing and she was saying that you can actually use visualization to instill a habit because you can use your imagination slash visualization to do something a hundred times in your mind. And, and and the brain and the body does not know any different. It's kind of like re-triggering the, the hormone, the release of the hormone over and over again. And you're retraining the cells to have a new default position. And so you may think, well, um, I don't know, how am I going to wake up every day for the next... 100 days or whatever but you can do that in your imagination <laughs> over and over again like you can spend 10 minutes and you could probably do it 25 times <laughs> that, that was one of the weirder parts of watching the secret for the first time because they mm -hmm. they, they talked about how the space program um, they use visualization to uh, uh, basically train the astronauts and so forth and discover just what you said which is that yeah. Um, when you visualize over and over again, your body literally can't tell the difference between the actual experience and your visualization of it. Right. I remember hearing that and saying to myself, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, the body does not have a separate set of neuronal patterns for imagination versus reality. So when you imagine a task or when you do the task, it's the same neurons that are being triggered. So, in essence, 
So that's why I, I, um, I'm having trouble connecting it together. That, that's yeah. really what's in essence here. <laughs> no, so so that's why that's why it's such an effective tool for uh, say at professional athletes. Yeah, was so, that guy the coach or what, what did he find out about the 25 percent versus 75 percent of the people who train one way or another? Yeah, way? I shared that last week. The, the you know the same book that I was reading where he divided the the group into uh, to four and one did a hundred percent of you know actual physical training i think it was shooting a basketball and then another group did 25 percent shooting 75 percent visualization and then another group did 75 percent visualization and 70 25 percent training and then another group did all 100 percent visualization and the the third group the one that did 25 percent Actual training and seventy-five percent visualization outperformed the other um, all the groups, but with 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 athletes, right? They so so, so before we miss that, before uh-huh. we leave that behind, yeah. what it's really suggesting is, any time that we want to accomplish something, we should be spending seventy-five percent of our time imagining that it's happening, and then yes. physically training the other twenty-five percent. Yes. yes, yeah, because what I'm just you know to stay with that a little bit because what happens is. When you imagine it, um, in your imagination, you can perform it perfectly every time. And it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. (laughs) So if you're practicing a technique incorrectly, you're going to become good at doing it incorrectly. And that's one of the the strong points about visualization. You You can do it right and you can practice doing it right and you can run the neuronal patterns in your head for doing it right such that that pattern um, becomes strengthened and, and reinforced and so even when you are in the throes of competition and you are out of body the the you know the subconscious is going to take over and do that thing perfectly that you have practiced so many times. And whereas in real life, you may be able to practice, uh, I don't know how many hours a day and how many times you're able to do it, it with visualization, you can multiply that several times over, doing it perfectly every time. Well, well, this actually does raise a point that has always been a point of confusion for me. Mm-hmm. Because as you stated there in your scientific way, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you want to you want to practice in your mind. You want to practice doing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. What happens if you can't imagine what doing it perfectly is? What happens is you you never really give yourself the chance to quote practice it perfectly unquote. Right, and that's why it was the third group, the group that did twenty five percent of actual shooting the ball and seventy five percent visualization outperform the group that did a hundred percent visualization because like you just pointed out if you are if you don't know how to do the task then it becomes difficult for you to do that task perfect properly perfectly even in your mind even in your mind mm. and so if you do know how to do it you've been you've been trained you've practiced you've been instructed you've been coached Whatever it is that you you know you have a, uh, an understanding of the fundamentals and you now know how to do it. You've done it at least once or twice, you know, perfectly. Then you can save that that I- image, that visualization, that memory, whatever, and that's what you're going to run. If you haven't done it, then it becomes um, 
uh, difficult. So this ties into the classic number one reason people become interested in trying the law of attraction for the first time, which is they want to attract money. I mean, yeah. health, health is a big one. Relationships are a big one. But money is really usually the top of the list. Yeah. And when people try to visualize getting a huge amount of money, much more than they're used to, to having in their lives, they almost never get it. Well, right. now I think we have a pretty good picture of why yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's because yeah. they don't really have a clear-cut model of how to bring that money into their lives. Yes, exactly. And, and if, the, if 25% of it is practice, well, you also mm -hmm. have to be able to practice that within that 20%, 25% time, so to speak, you got to actually be able to practice bringing that money into your life, and you don't know how to do it, yeah. which is and why it makes much more sense to focus on trying to go incrementally up. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's why some, like, like Abraham Hicks, they, they say, go to the mall and spend $100 <laughs> in it, your mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, get into the habit of actually seeing nice things and, 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 you know, imagining what it would be like to purchase it. Things that are, you know, within your, your limits, as it were, right now. And, and, and you keep doing that and you build and you increase the amount until you become more comfortable because like you said if you go outside of what you're comfortable with or what you are what you are actually able to imagine because the 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 reality with which you are able to imagine it is what makes the difference if you can engage all of your senses so what it looks like what it feels like what it tastes like you know that is what makes um makes for a stronger visualization uh, exercise because then you engage multiple areas of the brain and the pattern becomes more widespread and, and of course with more uh, neuronal networks being involved it becomes stronger and then it, it really um, becomes part of the subconscious as it were and then it, it's easier for it to manifest into your reality. Mm -hmm. And you used an example of spending money. It also works for making money. Yes. So if you're uncomfortable imagining swinging a million-dollar deal, right. not, no big surprise, mm -hmm. start out imagining the $10 deals. Exactly. You know, and then eventually the $100 deals yes. and so on. And go from there. All right. Well, as usual, we've used up an hour. <laughs> We're pretty close wow. to it. Not quite an hour. We're like two minutes away. Um, I do want, before we uh, leave here, first of all, I want to thank you for all the weeks you've been filling in while uh, Joel wasn't able to be here and leading up to our, uh, my new co-host joining next week, David Bradsky. So thank you, both of you, for taking the time to, uh, to to fill in the gap, so to speak. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, and we're always here to fill in the gap. <laughs> well, that, that's a good thing. I also want to remind our listeners uh, the various places you can find us because while we are here on PRN, and you can find us on PRN every week, we are also findable in other places as well. We'd love to make you permanent subscribers of our show. How do you subscribe to our podcast? It's pretty simple. You go to, well, you can go to our website, LOAToday.net. There's a little, not little, there's a great big subscribe button there. You can't even miss it. It's so big. Um, we are also now on Apple iTunes. We're in the iTunes store, so you can look for LOA Today in iTunes, and you can subscribe to us there. You can also find us on Facebook and on YouTube, and we even put out little tweets on Twitter when we do shows. So there's a lot of different ways to find us, and it's pretty exciting. 
And subscribing is free, right? It's absolutely free, and we'd love to have you join us on the journey. So, uh, Mark and Yuana, thank you for joining the journey today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.